Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dana Buckler Show. I'm your host, Dana, and in this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Glenn Karen. Glenn is a writer, producer, and director. Now, throughout his career, Glenn has achieved success on both the small and big screen, including creating the groundbreaking TV show Moonlighting. Now, in this conversation, we talk about how Glenn got his start in the entertainment business. We then shift to a conversation about Moonlighting and finish with a great chat about Glenn's first feature film, 1988's Clean and Sober. Now, I just want to say before we start, I really enjoyed this particular conversation. And after more than 10 years of podcasting, it's not lost on me how lucky I am to get to have these conversations with such influential people in the industry that I so love. So here it is, my conversation with Glenn Karen. Please enjoy. Your career goes all the way back into the, you know, the early 1980s all the way to today. I don't know if we'd have enough time to cover everything, but I certainly yeah, people, would. People don't realize that when I, when I did Moonlighting, I was 11. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's made all the difference in terms of longevity. <laughs> uh, before we get into, you know, sort of your background, you know, you've, you've been in television and movies in the entertainment industry uh, for, for a little while now. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the television landscape was like in the 1980s versus today. I say that because for those that remember, the 1980s were predominantly broadcast television, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox right. wasn't even a thing yet. So I, I guess that, that is my first question. You know, how, how much has that landscape changed from your experience? My, well, it, it, it's night and day. Uh, and you're quite right. There was just those sort of three behemoth networks. And then there was this other thing, HBO, that everybody was aware of. Um, but, but they cheated because they played movies that cost, oh, my gosh, 30 and $40 million to make. Um, against your episodes, which cost, you know, a million. Um, the other big difference, and I tell this to people, and I don't think they believe me. When we did the pilot for Moonlighting, I would carry the film over to ABC headquarters, which was in a place called Century City here in Los Angeles. And the man who owned the network, a guy named Leonard Goldenson, would sit in the room along with some other executives We'd, we'd roll the film and he'd turn around and go, she looks good. <laughs> I mean, you were, you were presenting to the man who owned ABC. And had he not liked what he saw, you wouldn't go on television. Now, it, it, you know, every platform, every network seems to be owned by a, a company that does other things as well. Uh, and so that changes things enormously. Also, you were competing for an extraordinarily limited amount of real estate. I, I guess an average network did about 27 hours of programming a week. And I'm just, that's off the top of my head. It may have been slightly less than that, but uh, in prime time. Uh, and there were three of them. So do the math. Uh, now, you, there are so many platforms uh, that there are literally, you know, I think this past year they said there were 600 shows, which... I mean, I can't watch all those shows much less. And when you're making a show, you can't watch any shows anyway, because it is it is if I believe if you do it right, you know, you're up at 430 and you're you know, you're in bed around 1130 and weekends you're writing and editing and trying to keep up. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely immersive uh, exercise. And, and 
in that day and age too, because you were theoretically, and I'm sure we'll get into the theoretically at some point, theoretically supposed to do 22 episodes a year. Um, you know, it, it, it was, which is, which is a fool's mission, by the way, you know, 22 of anything and do it well is, which is why Moonlighting, we never did 22. Um, uh, now the, the industry has moved, I think really starting with HBO, starting with shows like The Sopranos and then gradually drifting over to the other platforms, um, where people are going, you know what? I can do 10 and tell the story in 10 episodes and then pick it up the following season. And when does a season begin, sir? A season begins when we're ready. But that's a very sane approach. Um, but it didn't exist when I got in the business. It was a 22 episode a year. The year begins, uh, we, we start broadcasting September 7th or whatever the heck it was. Um, and I was sort of brought up with that culture. Um, you may not be old enough to remember, but boy, when, when the fall preview issue of TV Guide came out, that was a big damn deal in junior high. I mean, you know, every kid had one. We all were deciding the things we were excited about seeing. Um, it's a long answer to a short question, but, but that to me is the fundamental difference. It was a much smaller business, if that makes sense. It was also, I, I mean, I, I didn't say, boy, I want to make television. I wanted to make films, to be honest with you, movies. Uh, but you go where they'll have you. And where they would have me when I came to California was in the television business. Um, and that was the other thing that was wildly different. It was very unusual. I remember Jim Brooks said to me, whatever you do, don't put your name on an episode as a director. And I said, why? And he said, because they want virgins in the movies. It was a, there was this sense that if you had done television, you had somehow sullied yourself. And you'd never be pure enough or artistic enough or smart enough or special enough to transit to movies. Despite the fact that the, the executive uh, brain trust that we were running the various studios at that time invariably came from television. Um, but those are the major differences. Um, and by the way, the other big difference was if you had one show on the air, that was quite a feat. Now, there were those people like Aaron Spelling. Aaron had, I don't know, 10 or 12 shows on the air. Uh, now we have people that do this regular, you know, Greg Berlanti has just oodles of shows. Ryan Murphy, oodles of shows. Um, uh, Shonda Rhimes, oodles of shows. Um, but it, it was kind of like, almost seemed like a, uh, like a carnival act. Like, how, does, how do they do it? How do they contort themselves enough to... Um, uh, so that, that's another big difference. Um, but the biggest difference, I think, is this idea that there are so many platforms and so... and. There are very few people who are purely in the television business. Um, and, you know, this is part of what we're watching the, the sort of legacy companies struggle with is how do we stay in the television business? What is the television business? You know, what are the financial models, et cetera, et cetera. Um, by the way, I get paid by the word. Yeah. So I can run on and on and on and on. Uh, but, uh, but that's the big difference. You know, it's interesting because there's one more thing that I think we, we should discuss, and uh, that is the amount of people that, that watched a show in the 1980s because there were so many, so few networks. I say this because, I'll give you a perfect example, Glenn. 
I'm out and about on a typical day and I'm constantly having discussions with different friends and they're saying, have you seen this show yet? Have you seen this show? And usually the answer is no, there's too many shows out there. I can't keep up with what, right. what there is. However, I mentioned to 100% of the people that you're coming on my show and I mentioned moonlighting and 100% of the people. So, oh my God, I know that. I love that show. More people were watching shows. I mean, it was the, you had a, a minimum of third. I, I, I don't think that's what it was. I think you need to, you know, hang out with a better class of people. Yeah. Clear, clearly, that's the message to me. Yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 okay. Yes, it wasn't unusual for us to get 30-some million people watching at a time. I remember getting a, a 44 share for an episode and, and feeling awfully good about it. And ABC calling up and going, well, you understand, this means 56% of the country rejected you. Oh. <laughs> And that was the, you know, those were the sort of conversations that you had. But it was a different, very different. It was as different. That to now is as different. When I was growing up, invariably, at some point in public school, they would play for you Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. It was a radio play. And they would explain that it caused a panic in major cities. People listened to this radio play about Martians attacking the Earth. And they genuinely thought, Martians were attacking the earth. And as a kid, you would sit and listen to this and go, God, what a bunch of dumbasses. How can they? I mean, that's how different <laughs> it was a wildly different business, wildly different. And, um, uh, you know, but 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 everything changes, everything morphs. Yeah. And I can't tell you the minute that it happened or the moment or the seminal moment where I went, oh, this is different. Um you know, it happens incrementally. When I left television after Moonlighting, frankly, I didn't anticipate going back. So it wasn't something that I sort of zeroed in on. Uh, but, but it's crazy now. You're talking to someone who isn't the top, isn't even near the top someone because the business they're in is not the business you're in, you know? Um, and that's the biggest, I think difference. We are a spoke in a much bigger wheel. Um, and that's, for me, that's sort of sad because I like being all in with, with people. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, so let's talk about that journey, but let's talk about the journey that brings you to Moonlighting. You know, you mentioned that you always wanted to be a filmmaker, that television really wasn't something that was on your radar. And then you moved to California and take it from there. It's a boring story, but, but, but I mean, the, the short version is I, I wrote a, I was asked to write a pilot, which is a very unusual thing for someone for their first job. But I wrote this pilot and even more unusually, they said, okay, we're going to film this. And they did film it. They rewrote it quite a bit and a big, big star uh, said he would be involved. But at the end of the day, they didn't move forward with the show. But because of that, um, ICM, which was a huge talent agency at the time, said, we want to sign you. And all I knew was Steve McQueen was at ICN. So I went, okay, that's for me. And, um, and, and they, they would talk to me about movies and all this sort of thing, and movies, movies, movies. And then I signed the papers and they went, okay, let's talk about TV. Because they knew, they, they were smart, and they understood the, the place that it was going to be easiest for me to begin working was in television. And truthfully, I didn't know very much. I didn't go to film school. I wasn't, that isn't who I was. Um, 
So I said, I, I was very honest and said, I don't watch TV. I have no interest in TV. I'm a big snob. And they said, go home and watch TV. And if you see something you like, call us. <laughs> they put the onus on me. And I went home. And two days later, uh, Taxi premiered. And I went, oh, oh, this is this is really something quite different. This is really good. I'd love to be involved with this. So I picked up the phone. I called my agent and I said, taxi. And he said, stay by your phone. And I was like, huh? And they called back and said, okay, you have a deal to write. It was a, a number of scripts actually, but you have to A, agree to move to California because I was living in New York at the time. Um, and I said, okay, and got in the car, drove to California and uh, wrote an episode of Taxi. Um, uh, and uh, that was sort of, you know, and that sort of broke the bubbles. I, I see there's this other ecosystem that I haven't been taken seriously that, that may be of value to me and frankly is prepared to offer me work. And um, I wrote one episode of Taxi and, and I was, I was supposed to write five and they never asked me back to write the other four. I think because I was so excited that inadvertently, I think I may have been somewhat difficult. And the only thing I, it's the only thing I can attribute it to. And I got to know the Charles brothers a little bit later in my career when I was doing Moonlighting, they were doing Cheers, but they were running taxi. And, you know, I'd go in for meetings and, um, and they'd say, okay, well, we think, you know, Louis going to walk in and he's going to do this and this. And I go, oh, he wouldn't do that. And they just looked at me like, and rightly so. I mean, but I didn't understand that <laughs> I wasn't, um, that, that sort of uh, commentary wasn't expected from me. And, and I hadn't earned the right, frankly, to offer it. I, I was just like a, you know, a, a usually excited fan. Anyway, the episode turned out very well, but I never ended up going back. And that was fine with me. It wasn't the kind of television I was interested in doing. I wanted to do what they called back then one camera television. Yeah. And, and I started to get those offers. Steve Bochco called me and he had just finished this pilot called Hill Street Station with uh, Michael Kozel, as, and uh, he said, look at the pilot. So I looked at the pilot. He said, we'd love you to come join us. And I said, oh, no, this, this is never going to work. This is never going to go. And I told him why. And um, he's, he was a great man, and he, he was very amused by my, my uh, sense of self-assuredness, completely unearned. Um, and, uh, but, 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 but there was work for me in that zone, and the most interesting thing that happened was there was a man, people don't talk about him much anymore, named Steve Tessich, who wrote the movie Breaking Away, yeah. uh, won the Academy Award for it. A great playwright, too. Uh, they, he was approached about making break, Breaking Away into a television show. And I don't quite know how, but he got a hold of some of my writing and he said, will you join me? And I said, wow, okay, sure. And it was exciting because we filmed it in Athens, Georgia. It was just like filming a movie. I mean, you know, we were on location. Um, and um, there were two other people associated with the show who were senior to me, but one of them had a heart attack. The other one, I can't remember why they ultimately didn't. Anyway, the show ended up falling on me. I was basically running the show, and I had never run a show. Uh, but I learned in a hurry. Um, and I had great people around me. And I thought, oh, I like this. I'd rather make movies, but I really like this. Yeah, and out of that, I mean, we, we did six episodes. 
didn't get much of a rating, but we got excellent reviews. In fact, a very unusual thing happened. Um, there was a, a program that's still on CBS called Sunday Morning. At that time, it was hosted, I think, by Charles Corral. And he did a 20-minute piece on Breaking Away, a show that was shown on ABC. That was very unusual. Um, but anyway, so ABC came to me and they went, wow, you're, you're a really young guy and blah, 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 blah. Would you go into business with us? And I said, well, what do you mean? I, I had no idea what they were talking about. And they said, we want to offer you an arrangement. Go form a company, which I did, Picture Maker Productions, and you'll, we'll make you a deal to do three two-hour movie of the week pilots. They'll be pilots, but we will present them as movies of the week in case they don't work for us as shows. We'll be able to play them and recover our money. So uh, I took that deal, which was sort of a first of its kind. Um, and one of the reasons that Moonlighting was not widely seen after it was broadcast was because it was owned by the company that broadcast it. And back then they had this thing called the FinCEN rules, which meant you couldn't be in both business. You can't be a distributor and a broadcaster. But ABC was trying to flaunt those rules and see if they could nudge Congress and all those things into letting broadcasters be producers, which now, of course, they are, and it's wiped out the whole industry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it used to be that somebody like me could go in and say, I want to sell you a show, and they'd say, great, we love that show, and then you could go and start your own company, and that's how Stephen Cannell Productions or MTM or Picture Maker was born. Anyway, we, we did – that all came out of Breaking Away because we did two other pilots, uh, which – which I was very proud of, but they were frankly way too arty for the room. And uh, then they said, okay, we're doing the third one and we're going to tell you what to do. And I went, oh, no, don't do that. And they said, yeah, you're going to do a boy-girl detective show. I said, oh, I hate those. And they said, well, that's what you're doing. Um, and I, they said, you can do anything you want with it, but that's what you're doing. And all I heard was, you can do anything you want with it. And I sort of clung to that as because uh, the idea of being the 25th boy-girl detective show just made me crazy. Um, and so that's sort of where that came from. So, okay, so that's where it comes from. And I've, I've got a couple side questions real quick. Absolutely. For, for, Absolutely. for the listeners who aren't sure, can you just talk real briefly about exactly what a pilot is? And, you know, just I know how many are made, how many are actually picked up. I know pilot season was a big thing. Is it still a big thing? I just fired a lot of questions at you. I apologize. Um. It, Yes, back in the 80s and 90s and even in the um, 2010s, pilots were a big thing. It was basically the way the thinking was you're coming in and you're proposing, I'd like to tell what in success would be a hundred chapter story. Uh, and so they would have you write chapter one, the first script. And if they liked the first script, you'd film it. That was called a pilot. And you'd hire actors with the understanding that they're going to be in this one episode. And in success, the network would look at that episode and say, okay, give us 13 of these. Give us 12 more for the first year. And then in success, that show would go six or seven seasons and spin off over 100 episodes. Um, it's changed in the last you know, seven or so years, largely because of Netflix. Netflix, um, <laughs> I wrote a pilot must be about 10 years ago, maybe maybe eight years ago, that Ben Affleck wanted to direct. And um, he had just gotten the Oscar for Argo. So we went around to a bunch of different 
networks and things. And he said, he was very appreciative. He said, I want to go to Netflix. And the agents sort of poo-pooed it because Netflix wasn't the Netflix we think of now. Uh, but we went in and uh, I told the folks there the story of the pilot and, and all that kind of thing. And they said, uh, they said, that's really interesting, but we don't buy pilots. Hmm. I said, excuse me? They said, we buy seasons. Do you know what your first season is? And I said, well, I could lie to you and tell you, of course, I know what my first season is. I said, I, I know in the most general way what it is, truthfully. But, but one of the great things about making television is it's, it's, it's much more like jazz than it is anything else. You're, you're constantly responding to the things you're discovering as you make this journey. So... I don't feel like good television comes out of hemming yourself in or making promise, narrative promises to yourself that A, you may not be able to pay off and B, allows you to stick your head in the sand and miss the things that would actually give the show sort of uniqueness in life and all that sort of thing. Um, and so to, because I'm a wise ass, I, I asked, uh, I think it was Ted Sarandos, um, I said, well, you just finished the show with David Fincher. Are you telling me he came in here and told you what the first season would be? And he said, well, as a, matter, as a matter of fact, he did. I said, oh. He said, to be fair, that show, House of Cards, was based on a British format. So he had a skeleton from which to work. I said, well, let me ask you another question. So he came in here and he told you what the first season was going to be. Is that what he delivered? And he went, oh, no. I said, and that's my point. Yeah. And he seemed, you know, really uh, fascinated by the conversation, but passed on the show. So my, the reason I bring it up is a lot of people started to sort of take the Netflix model and say, wait a second, rather than putting all this energy into one script and spending a lot of money on one episode that we might or might not broadcast, let's create a writer's room and develop a season. Because when we have 10, 11, 12 scripts, we will certainly know whether this is something we believe can go the distance. So the, 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 the process has changed in that regard. Um, I think it's starting to swing back the other way to somewhat, to some degree, but it's certainly, uh, predominantly for the moment, uh, we want to see, we want to know that this thing has legs that, that it can, cause I think, frankly, they, over the years, they bought a lot of pilots, they film them, they love them, and then a pilot is different than a, than a 13 chapter story, than a 100 chapter story. Than a, and sometimes you just go, I mean, I, I did a show that I loved called Now and Again, and I, it wasn't difficult for me to understand what the premise of the show was and how it could go season after season. But, but Les Moonves looked at it and went, what do you do every week? I don't understand what, he, he wanted to know, every week, here's what happens. And I said, you have to understand, I am chemically incapable of getting excited about something where you know every week here's what happens. To me, our job is to startle the audience every week, you know, not to feed them comfort food. So we were just sort of, you know, uh, opposed, you know, diametrically uh, on, on, on what the task was. But, um, but now that there are so many platforms, a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel like, okay, I need to engage you. Every, I need to earn your trust and your attention every week. Not just the first week, uh, but when there were only three channels for people to watch, frankly, a lot of the creativity w 
was lazier, in my opinion. Interesting. So to circle back to you're now going to make the 25th boy-girl detective show out there, you are working kind of under the guise, if I understand it, that this is going to be a, you know an hour and a half pilot, two hours with commercials, TV movie of the week. So right. you, you know this is going to air no matter what, that you, you kind of right. go into it with that understanding. So moving forward, tell me where the inspiration for Moonlighting comes from. Tell me, you, you know, you've got to do this boy-girl detective. What do you do differently? I was, it's going to sound very arrogant. I was very, um, I read William Goldman, uh, an interview with William Goldman where he talked about Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And he said he believed, he hoped that when he wrote this film and it was made into a film, it would kill the Western genre, which had been hanging around really since the 1920s. He just thought all the tropes of it and the, that here, and here was a sort of a, I mean, there was no expression meta back then, but it's a very meta Western. I mean, the, not that they knew they were in a movie, but they sort of knew they were legends. They, they knew they were bandits and um, they did a lot of things to amuse themselves that they shared with the audience. I had the same feeling. I thought, Maybe there's a way to come at this that'll kill this. Because I, I was absolutely baffled by the detective genre on television. Now, you would have thought, based on the number of detective shows there were, that there was a detective agency on every corner of every street in America. And I never saw one, not ever, you know? So I was always sort of like, huh? What? What is this conceit? And I thought, well, maybe if you confront that, you know, sort of shine a light on like, here's this guy and he's working at a detective agency that does no business, but his purpose is to do no business. I mean, that was the premise of the show. He was there to be a tax write-off. And then the woman uh, who was funding this, you know, she loses all her money. And so she comes around and says, okay, I got to close you. And I says, wait, 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 we're really good at not making money. I bet we could be really good at making money. Um, kind of a ridiculous premise, but it was mine and I was going to run with it. Um, the other thing, and, and then because I was so such a snob, frankly, and so bored by the tropes, every time I would run up against one, I would try and find a way to, you know, turn it in on itself. Um, and it took a while for ABC to understand that's what I was doing and they weren't sure they liked it. Um, but the bigger hill, frankly, wasn't any of that. It was getting someone to play David Addison. Yeah. Uh, we, we looked at, uh, I didn't personally look at but, but as a collective, we looked at 3,000 men. I brought Bruce to the network, and he was the only person I brought to the network 11 times. They rejected him 11 times. Um, so that, was, for me, was the hill. You know, Because I knew if I could get those two people together on film, that they would light the world on fire. I just knew that, believed that with all my heart. Um, but ABC was just convinced he was not a leading man. Uh, he certainly didn't look like the other leading men on ABC. I, I acknowledged that. Um, but he he was somebody I knew. You know, he reminded me of the guys I hung out with and the people I grew up with. You know, his attitudes, his mannerisms, his everything. Um, so more than me sort of saying to them, and I'm going to turn all these tropes in on them side, and we never had that conversation. The conversation was largely about who's the guy going to be? And then at a point, ABC said, we're just going to pay everybody off because we think this is uncastable. 
And I pleaded, and I said, can we do a screen test, please? And then Sybil wouldn't screen test with it. Oh. Um, so there were, there were many, many, many other challenges that sort of needed to be. And then as we were making the show, they would call me and go, what are you doing? I'll give you an example. Um, in the pilot, there's a scene where Sybil shows up at the Blue Moon Detective Agency, and we cut inside and we meet Bruce for the first time, and he's playing sort of office basketball. He's got a, 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 a garbage pail up on a, a the hinge of the door, and he's shooting, I think it was rolled up paper, maybe it was a you know sponge ball or something in there. And there's a knock on the door and the door opens and Mr. Pesto leads in Sybil Shepherd. And as she does, the pail falls off the hinge and lands on her head. We do not acknowledge that it's there. She comes in and she goes, Bruce walks over. He does not acknowledge any, that any of this is going on. I said, hello, Mr. Pesto, you look a little pale today. And, and, this, and, and Sybil Shepherd is standing there like, what planet am I on? We were shooting the scene, and Bob Butler, who was a fantastic director and directed everything I wrote until I started directing, turned and looked at me and he went, Glenn, as if to say, are we really doing this? And I said, yes, yes. And he said, but it's a detective show. I said, exactly. ABC a couple of times called and said, you can't. I remember we did a scene maybe in the first episode, not the pilot, but... Um, you know, you've seen the scene a hundred times. They, they, they go to a house. They have to get in the house. They can't get in the house. And in a usual detective show, the guy would take out a kid he has hired. He has hidden in his jacket and he picked the lock or something. In this show, you know, they can't get in. And he looks at Sybil. He says, you got a bobby pin? She takes a bobby pin out of her hair. He takes the bobby pin. He sticks it in the lock. And he goes, you stick the bobby pin in. You pull the bobby pin out. You stick the bobby pin in. And you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey. And the door opens. And they said, you can't do that. And I said, why not? And they said, you're taking all the jeopardy away. You're making fun of it. I said, what, what jeopardy is it you're referring to? They said, well, the jeopardy that powers the series, maybe there's something dangerous behind that door. Maybe someone's going to kill them. I said, look, there's been like 30, 35 years of television. People understand no one's getting killed because they have to come back next week. Yeah. <laughs> I said, there's no, there's no jeopardy here. I said, our task is to entertain them. We, and we would continue to have this conversation. I would just do what I wanted to do. It reached its apex in the last episode of the first six. They, 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 they go to this, there's some sort of an event in a ballroom and they have to get in to find the bad guy. And there's guys with earwigs and tuxedos guarding the place. And they walk up to this one guy and Bruce says, um, hey, tell me something. Have you seen a guy with a mole on his nose? And the guy answers back, he says, a mole on his nose? A mole on his nose. Now, how do you suppose a mole? And he answers back. And it's, it's this scene that's written in Dr. Seuss rhyme, back and forth between the Bruce. And they said, and it was very, very funny. And they said, you can't do that. Again, because you're taking all the, and I said, I should say, okay, we're, we're, and it, it, they were not alone, by the way. Um, I remember when the show premiered, Howard Rosenberg was a huge critic here in Los Angeles, and he wrote a review on the front page of the calendar section of the LA Times, and the headline was, the, was Beauty and the Beast. Oh. And he just said what a horrible show this was, what, you know, what a 
he clearly wasn't a big fan of Bruce's because uh, he was the beast. Um, he went on and on and on. And then three weeks later, he wrote another review and he opened with, okay, I didn't get it. I get it now. And then went on to say how good it was. And that seemed to be, it took the country like a minute to get it. A, it was very fast. You know, the dialogue was very and, and And it was just a different thing. But the people who got it first, and this was the most helpful thing, were the advertisers who all said, we want to be on that show. And that woke ABC up because we were 64th in the ratings. But in the summer, back then, they would do summer reruns. They reran it and it just you. So, you know, it, it was. Um, but but I, I just felt like I had nothing to lose. You know, I wasn't anybody. Um, and Bruce wasn't anybody. Sybil had been a huge movie star, you know, but but she was going to do this television series now. And so my feeling was try anything. Let's have fun. Let's let's. And if it amuses me, maybe it'll amuse somebody else. I, I can't do it in this Machiavellian way where I, go, I know what they'll think is funny. It's it's. I know what makes me laugh, and then you hope that other people feel the same way. That's that's the best you can do, I believe. How did you channel David Addison's dialogue? Because I say this because last night, or not last night, the night mm-hmm. before, my girlfriend and I we sat down, we watched the pilot episode. All right. Just, just, I haven't seen it. You know, obviously I mentioned to you before we were recording, I'm in my forties. So I was not necessarily the target audience when Moonlighting debuted, but watching it through the eyes of an adult, I'm watching this and I, I'm taking myself out of knowing who Bruce Willis would become after the show and watching this from, all right, this is the world's first introduction to Bruce Willis. Getting past that, I then was really paying attention to the, the snappy dialogue. And I'm just curious how, how you channeled that. Like, it's incredible. And I remember sort of saying to my girlfriend, who's watched every episode of the show, knows it inside and out. And I said, he, he consistently pulls this off week, week after week. So where do you channel the dialogue? I mean, I don't know. I just, um, again, I wrote it mostly to amuse myself. And I, I there was something about, Sybil was this thought of at that time as this sort of, and I don't mean to be reductive and I don't mean it to sound misogynistic, but she was regarded as sort of this perfect thing. You know, she was beautiful. She was smart. She had a sort of regal quality. And at the same time, she was also sort of game, you know, so she had all these disparate qualities and it just amused me to put a guy that I recognized as somebody that I would have gone to school with, would have gone for a beer with, would have gone, you know, and forced them together. Now, the inspiration to a large extent was the Taming of the Shrew. I had seen Taming of the Shrew in Central Park with Meryl Streep and Royal Julia. And my first wife had done the play in college. So I saw it, I don't know, 150 times or something, you know. But in terms of where the dialogue, I don't know. It, it just, it is what it is, what it is. I, you know, I just, again, I would, I did, I, I, I'm going to digress for a second. Yeah. I directed a movie that was the first film that Vince Gilligan wrote and had produced. And Vince was very, very young. I was very young, but he was really young. And um, I would go to him and say, I'm struggling to understand 
what this scene is about, why it exists, blah, blah, blah. This sort of questions directors ask writers. And he would look at me and he'd say, I don't know, I just thought it was really cool. And I, I'm not saying that to denigrate him or make fun of him because he's he is the president of the Geniuses Union. Um, but he was in that stage of his work that I was in when I did Moonlight, where you do everything instinctively. You don't really understand how things work yet. You just know what feels right. And, and that is both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because when, when all the engine uh, spark plugs are firing, um, you are usually coming up with amazingly original stuff. The negative is, when they're not firing, you say to the world, and it's a world that's completely unionized and runs on a very expensive clock, you go, okay, everybody's got to wait a second because I don't know what to do next. My instincts haven't told me. I, I never said it that way. What I would say was even more preposterous. I, I would actually say to people, they'd say, what are you waiting for? And I go, I'm waiting for the truth. Because I believed these characters had a certain truth to them. Um, and that it would reveal itself to me. Um, I wasn't, they weren't waiting for me to tell them what to do. I was waiting for them to tell me what to do. I know that sounds pretentious and artsy fartsy and all of it, but it, it is the truth uh, in terms of what the process was. And in terms of the snappy dialogue, it's all of a thing. I didn't separate the dialogue from the people. I didn't didn't have that kind of, still don't, frankly. I, I, I try and come at it all from a fairly pure place. I mean, obviously, when you've been doing it as long as I have, you start to learn there's a method to the madness. And um, if you you can be analytical about it, you, you, you know, to some extent. But, but you do sacrifice something because when you allow yourself to be surprised, then you're in wholly original, you know, country. Um, at the top of season two, we did this episode that I wrote in my extraordinary narcissism. I wrote for David Lee Roth. I thought, I'll get David Lee Roth to play this part. It was Bruce's brother. It was called Brother, Can You Spare a Blonde? And um, I don't know why, but David Lee Roth had other plans. And uh, so we ended up getting Charlie Rocket to play the part. And I opened it with Charlie Rocket doing a rap song. It was 1986. I'm not sure most of America even knew what a rap song was. But it just amused the hell out of me. I wasn't following some diagram or some... I mean, when I first heard about, you know, there's a very popular... It, it's actually the Greek unities, but I mean, it, they've sort of taken the Greek unities and turned it into a three-act structure, and they, they almost turned it into a religion for a lot of people who write. And I, I, I don't think there's any one way to do anything. And... The dialogue was just what it was. And what was great, and one of the things that made it possible, was it was it was musical. It had a meter. It had a... And Bruce was musical. He got it right away. It's one of the reasons I gave him the part. He would stand up. I would, I would write him a monologue at 5.30 in the morning, a three-page monologue. He would come in at 7 o'clock, and at 7.40, he'd have it word perfect. And he wanted it word perfect because he understood. He would call me from the set. He'd go, you better get down here. They're messing with your stuff. And 
because he understood, and Sybil understood it too. She was a student because she had lived with Bogdanovich for so long. And she told me every night he'd show her a movie. And then he'd explain that movie's sort of place in the cinema universe. So when I first approached her, I gave her, I had half the script. I said, I've written this and I think it's you. She read it and she said, if the second half is as good as the first half, I would do this because this is a Hawksian comedy. I didn't know what the hell a Hawksian comedy was. I thought, is that, it's not a comedy about Hawks. It's, it's, I mean, I had no idea she was talking about Howard Hawks. I, I did, you know, I was a bit of a cinemaphile. I, I was a big Frank Capra fan. I love the Marx Brothers, but Howard Hawks was, that was over my head at that point. Um, but she understood. She understood what we were doing for the most part. I'm not saying she cared. It took her a while to care, but 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 she knew what it was. She recognized it for what it was. Um, long answer to a short question. I apologize. I want to go back to you. You finished the pilot episode. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a pilot episode. It's going to be a TV movie of the week, no matter what. Tell me. Right. Tell me about when it premiered. What kind of response did it get? Everybody was very excited at ABC, but it was also tempered because they used to call ABC Aaron's Broadcasting Company. Yeah. Literally every hour show on ABC was an Aaron Spelling show, and this was not an Aaron Spelling show. And it was almost like they were afraid to put it on because they didn't want to upset Aaron. But it was, they felt, this is it's going to sound, I'll just say, they thought it was too good not to put on. Yeah. So they put it on, and I, somebody actually, it's on YouTube, I had always thought how can I save this? And I couldn't figure out how to save it, but somebody did. And it's literally the intros and outros to the movie and every commercial break. And the guy, I think it's um, Paul Thomas Anderson's father, who was doing the voiceovers uh, for the movie, would say, isn't this great? It's the ABC Sunday night. I mean, I was like, you know, they're editorializing about their own shows in real time (laughs) as it's being broadcast. Um, And I remember Brian Grazer, who I did not know, called me the next day and said, how did you do that? I didn't really understand the question, um, but it had a big impact. Um, then we started doing the episodes, the, and the episodes did not do as well, I think, as they had hoped, because as I say, we were like number 63 or something in the ratings, which was pretty far down there. And it was the advertisers who sort of said, we want to be in that. That's the environment we want to be in. Um, and that really got us the second season. And so the second season, I just went for broke. You know, we did the black and white show. We did the Shakespeare show. We did that. I mean, every week, Bruce used to come in and go, what do you want to do this week, boss? And, you know, let's do a boxing show. Let's do a musical. Let's do this. Let's do that. And they, you know, I would shoot them until I felt they were worthy of an audience, which also, on the one hand, infuriated a lot of people at ABC. But it was slightly disingenuous. I remember there was a wonderful man at ABC, the number two guy, Lou Ehrlich came into my office one day and screamed at me for 20 minutes and said, you better get this thing under control and blah, 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 blah. And just yelling and screaming and just, you know, and then he got to the door and then he turned and he said, but don't change anything. <laughs> and he left. And that was kind of the, the paradox of it. It was such, it had become, became so quickly such a huge success. Um, and all I thought was, oh, good, this means I can do all the things I wanted. I mean, I had all these crazy plans. I wanted, I always wanted Bruce to light a match on the edge of the screen. <laughs> you know, like Bugs Bunny would, would do on that. And I wanted to do a 3D episode, and they actually shot tests to do it. And, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, Paul Rubens, the late Paul Rubens, 
um, I met him at a party and he confessed to me that he bought that footage. He, he was a collector of uh, memorabilia. I ended up doing the 3D episode, but I did it on Medium. Um, but, and I bought, at one point I bought the rights to a Japanese, it was like Godzilla versus Mothra. I can't remember the exact name, but it was one of those movies with the idea of, of, they called it matting back then because it was a different process, matting Bruce and Sybil into it, that that would be an episode. And I had a lunch with James Cameron to ask him if he'd direct it. Um, I mean, I had all these plans, but a lot of them obviously didn't see the light of day. Um, but that second season was really, I'm very proud of that. I mean, we really, really just kind of like went for it. To circle back to something you said a little earlier on, you know, that you, you never did the full episode run for each season. And I'm wondering if you could just no. talk a little bit about, you know, the, 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 the reasons for that. There were three reasons. Okay. One was me, one was Bruce, and one was Sybil. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't... I mean, to this day, when I try and talk to an actor about doing something with me, I will say to them, I will never ask you to find the scene. When you hit the stage, you will understand exactly what the scene is. And now I want you to bring your magic to it, but, but I would never release pages until it was apparent to me. Part of it, too, was back then, people who directed television weren't... It was, it was a different job. It was oh, People used to compare it to being a traffic cop. And I wasn't interested in that. So I would try and write a script like it was a set of directions, you know, an assembly guide, um, and, and try and, as much as I could, make it foolproof. And then also try and hire the best people that I could, best directors among the people that were directing television. So it took me a long time to write a script. There was nothing vague about it. There was nothing imprecise about it. Um, so that was one reason. Then you had Bruce. And Bruce, you know, very, I want to say somewhere in the middle of the second season, went out and broke his shoulder. Oh. And somewhere in the middle of the third season, he got this movie he wanted to do called Die Hard. And I didn't want to stand in the way of him doing that. So I said, we'll figure out a way to make it work. And the way we made it work was, frankly, he'd come work for us during the day. And then it was all on the same lot. It was 20th Century Fox. He'd walk over to the soundstage and shoot Die Hard at night. Um, and then there was Sybil Shepard. And Sybil, um, Sybil had been a huge movie star. And then, and this happens in careers, she lost the interest of the audience. I think Frankly, she and Peter were showing up on The Tonight Show every three weeks and sort of throwing their affection for each other in the face of everybody. And uh, she had sort of worn out her welcome and, and in the movies. And she tried to do a television show the previous year called The Yellow Rose of Texas or something. And, and she, she was dispirited. And... When she signed on for Moonlighting, I think she had imagined that it would be a much easier show than it turned out to. I mean, she would actually say to me, iambic pentameter? Why? Why are we doing that? That's hard. You know, um, and she would get tired and she, she'd announce at 4.30 in the afternoon, I'm going home. And I'd say, no, you're not. She'd say, yes, I am. I'd say, no, you're not. And she wouldn't. But then the next day she'd call in sick for two weeks. She'd let me know. So the combination of those three people is, is you know, is tricky. 
because um, you know I, I'm trying to give them a script worth performing. Uh, Bruce is going through a meteoric kind of stardom, and there there are no lessons for that. There's no book for that. You sort of have to you have to live through it. And Sybil had been through it and is watching this, and that that was part of her too. Thought uh, a little attention paid over here, please. Yeah. Um, and I will tell you, um, at the time, because she, she was, she was, she was unhappy and she didn't make a secret of it. Um, and I was usually the object of, of, of her unhappiness. Uh, so at the time it was very difficult for me to feel sympathy, as much sympathy as I probably should. In going back and restoring the shows and looking at them again, my God, she's so great. And I'm not sure I appreciated just how great she was. Um, I do know this. I would get infuriated sometimes with the way she behaved. And then I'd go into the screening room and watch dailies and I'd go, okay, well, that's why we're putting up with this. But, you know, 30 years on to see it again and go, oh my gosh, she was singularly amazing. Um, surprised me. Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, is there truth to the story I heard that you you didn't try to stop Bruce Willis from being in Die Hard, but you told him to the effect of you, why he shouldn't do the movie? Is there any truth to that story I read? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had done two movies. He did he did Blind Date with Blake Edwards, and he did another movie with Blake Edwards called uh, uh, Sunset uh, something Sunset. It was a western with James Garner, um, and the Second movie particularly didn't do well, and the first movie did okay. And the feeling was that his movie career was probably over because he hadn't really knocked it out of the park. And it's a cruel business, and he came from television. He had that mark on him. Um, one day I came to work, and he said, uh, he said to me, hey, I just got another movie. I'm doing this movie Die Hard. And I went, oh, you don't want to do that. And he said, what? I said, you don't want to do that. They've offered that to everybody in town. You know, I know they offered it to Sloan, they offered it to Richard Gere, they offered it to um, Schwarzenegger, they offered it to, you know, I said, eh, eh, and you're not that guy. They're going to laugh you off the screen. He said, I don't care. They're paying me so much because they were so desperate to get the movie made. They're paying me so much money, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and that was sort of the way he went into it was, well, I can't my career as a movie actor can't be in a worse place. Let's give this a whirl. And he made the movie. I mean, he would, to some extent, they made the movie around him because, as I said, he wasn't available half the day. We had him. And then once in a great while, Joel Silver would call me up and say, get over here. Tell me how to make him funny. Because Bruce's inclination, you know, he was still a very new actor. His inclination was to play tough. And when we were making the pilot, I would take him for these long walks and say, you don't need to play tough. The, the things that make you tough announce themselves when you walk in the room. I, I would say to him, stop leading with your dick. Lead with your heart a little bit. It, it's, it's okay because the rest of the stuff gets done. And he just sort of looked at me. He was puzzled. And I'd say, you're Lee Marvin. I'm just asking you to be in Cat Baloo first. <laughs> And we we had all the same references, you know. We we found the same things funny. We Three Stooges, Marx Brothers, all that stuff. And then he would turn me on to things. You know, I turned him on to things, and he turned me on. I remember one day he came in, and he said, he said, 
you know who Preston Sturgis is? And I said, no. And he, you know, he turned me on to the Palm, Palm Beach story and, you know, a bunch of things. And, and um, I mean, my great sadness about, uh, about the restoration of the show is that, unfortunately, it took so long. I don't know that he's really going to sit and watch it. His children are, and that was very important to me and very important to him. Um, I mean, we talked about this. You know, his disease is a progressive disease, so it isn't like you wake up one day and boom. It, it, um, but but it, that's my one great sadness is he, he can't enjoy people. For a lot of people, Bruce Willis is a guy who carries a gun. Guy who goes into a place and carries a gun. I used to, and I used to get on him about that. I used to say, "You go to Scorsese and you tell him you'll be the third guy walking through the door. You need to work with great people." And he did. You know, he he did. I love. You know, he did this movie with Robert Benton, um, Nobody's Fool, Paul Newman. He's amazing in it, and he's a wonderful actor. And um, but you know, he he got into this groove that. You know, and people wanted to see him do that. And he was, you know, obviously compensated very well for doing that. Um, but boy, go back and look at Bob Zemeckis's, uh, uh, that movie he did with Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. I mean, he is one of the greats. Anyway, well, can next you, question. Can, Sorry. Well, can you take me through, <laughs> just take me real briefly through your first time seeing Die Hard and your thoughts on the film? Yeah, I, I remember it vividly. Um, so he went off and made Die Hard, and I went off and made Clean and Sober. And um, he called me one night. He said, do you want to see Die Hard? And I said, sure. And he said, Joel Silver just finished mixing it that afternoon, and they were going to run it. And in, in, they have this theater at 20th Century Fox, the Daryl Zanuck Theater. They're going to run it in the Daryl Zanuck Theater, be there at 7 o'clock. So I think, okay, this is going to be interesting. So I go, and there are some other people there, and they run the movie. And I was like, holy moly, this is like the greatest movie in history. I'm like, I, I cannot believe how amazing this movie is. This is also, just to place it in time somewhere, the dawn of car phones. So I get in my car and I'm driving home and I call him and I go, Bruce, oh my God, that, that's a movie for the ages, man. That you just, that's, that's what a great movie. You did it. You made a great movie. It's a great movie. He said, come on, Glenn, you made a movie. I said, no, no, I made like a film. <laughs> I said, that's a movie. That's like a movie. I was just, I said, and you're amazing. And I said, and that Alan Rickman guy who I had never heard of. Yeah. I said, he's amazing in it. And this one's amazing. And that one's amazing. You know, I was just, and mind you, I'm watching the movie hundred yards away from Nagasaki Plaza or whatever. <laughs> it was just, I was just stunned by it. And then he came back to work and we, we continued to make Moonlighting. But, 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 but the world, and the other thing you have to remember too is when the movie came out, he wasn't even on the poster. He was considered such potent anathema in the movie business. They didn't put him on the poster. Then when they released it, and after a week or two, and it became this huge blockbuster, they put his face on the poster, and it became a Bruce Willis movie. But initially, it was like it was like a secret they wanted to keep from the audience. Um, it, it's just so fascinating, all, all the permutations to his career. And uh, But no, I was so happy for him. So, so happy for him. 
That's, um, that's a great story. <laughs> I appreciate you oh. sharing that. No, that's a great story. I, I will say the first time I ever went to Los Angeles, uh, getting off the, um, is it the 405, I think, onto Wilshire and uh, yep. seeing the, uh, I don't even know, I mean, obviously I refer to it as Nakatomi Plaza, but seeing that building for the first time, I think I was more enamored by that than seeing the Hollywood sign for the first time. It was such an impactful film on me. Uh, so just a little side and, note there. And, and it holds up. I mean, I showed it to my, he's 14 now, I think I showed it to him when he was 12, and he was like, wow. I mean, it's it's great. And it's Bruce, it's the casting of Bruce and Bruce's understanding of how he could fit into the mosaic in a way that was uniquely his, that I think makes the film work. Because believe me, it was not conceived as the story of an everyman. It was, it was the story of a Superman yeah. trapped in, the, you know. Um, and of course, great people. I mean, Joel Silver, one of the most amazing personalities in the history of Hollywood, um, was a great, there's a reason that he endured for so long. He was a great producer, really smart. And, you know, sometimes maybe being a great producer doesn't make, make you a great human being, but, but because he could be loud and brusque and all that sort of stuff. But, but boy, he knew how to make a movie. He knew how to make a movie. And his fingerprints were all over that thing. Um, great director um, and great writing. You know, um, and beautifully cast, Bonnie Bedelia. I mean, it's just it's just a really good movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, Changed action movies forever. It really did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, the, everything became Die Hard on. You know, a Die Hard on a yeah. Blast ship. Yeah, but it, it's just it, you know, and, which which was a shame in its own way. Yeah. You know, um, but so it goes. Yeah, you know, and that's why you have people like Quentin Tarantino who go, "Come here, let's do something different," and <laughs> and he, you know, and all of a sudden he's doing, you know, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can we talk about sort of Moonlighting coming to to an end? You know, it does sure. five seasons, and 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 just sort of talk about how it it kind of everything kind of wraps up. And well, I wasn't there for the ending. I I was I I was invited to go at a point which was painful. I know it was really painful for Bruce. So I, there are actually episodes I have never seen. Really? If I'm being completely honest. Um, I had gone and made a film. So, but, but, you know, they had sort of had enough of me at ABC. First of all, there was a changing of the guard at ABC and Brandon Stoddard came and ran the network. And he, I don't think he was a fan of my, I think he, thought that I was some sort of agent of chaos or something. Um, I, I, I may not have been the most, at that point in my career, I have since figured out how to do it, but my North Star was, these have to be as good as they can be, you know? And everybody here working at ABC looks like they're doing just fine. So if I spend a little money making it better, if it takes a couple of extra days, you know, the the nation won't fall apart. Um, and that was probably a, a reckless attitude to have at that moment, but it was mine. And uh, so when they saw an opportunity, I, frankly, when I think Sybil's displeasure with me got to a certain point uh, and they realized they had to make a choice, um, as Joel Silver said to me, she looks better in pumps than you. <laughs> <laughs> um so they, they got rid of me. And I think they may have felt that the thing was sort of teetering toward its end. 
Um, I know a lot of people feel like when the two of them got together on the show, that that was the end of it. I, I don't agree with that. And I, I believe it could have been fantastic. But the fates intervened. There was a writer's strike. And then Sybil got pregnant with twins and Bruce broke his shoulder. All those things happened. And he had another movie scheduled. And so we had to sort of construct this sort of checkerboard of schedules and stuff like that. And it was very hard to construct an episode that way. Uh, or, or, you know, a, a meaningful episode. It all became about schedules, you know. And I remember... I did do an episode after I left. Um, Bruce called me and said, please, please, please do this. And Chick Edley, who's a wonderful writer on the show, called me and said, let's do this together. And we did this show that some people like and some people hate, called Womb with a View, where what you discover is that the baby, this baby that people were wondering, is it Mark Harmon's baby? Is it Bruce Willis's baby? Is in fact Bruce Willis's because the baby is played by Bruce Willis. <laughs> and then she, she loses the baby. Um, I was I was pretty fond of it. Some people found it uh, offensive. You do what you can, but I still I'm still kind of fond of it. Uh, I thought it was audacious and at the same time filled with heart and uh, seemed true to the characters to me and true to the time. And then I remember I think I watched the last episode when it aired just because. And I remember thinking I, I see what they're doing. It was very hard for me to surrender and objectively watch because I was so. It was sort of like having been married to someone and seeing them on a what appears to be a very pleasant date with someone else. And you're like, hey, you know, there's no room for me in this scenario. I'm not sure. I don't think I want to sit here with this particular view. So, you know, it, it, I have very mixed feelings about all of it, but, but still love all the people. And, you know, Sybil and I made up, if you will, um, Bruce always remained somebody I felt extraordinarily close to. We always stayed in touch. I mean, so literally sometimes a year would go by, but we always stayed in touch. And we always knew we could ask anything of each other, you know, favor-wise or this or that. The people I made the show with, Jay Daniel, the, the directors and writers that I worked with, um, I hold them all very dear. And I hold the experience extraordinarily dear. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, but I don't have a vivid memory of the end. I just sort of blocked it out. There's so many questions that have sort of popped in my mind based on everything you just told me, but I'm going to keep the ship going steady here because I could go off in oh. se several different tan tangents here if I could. But I, I do want to ask you, you mentioned the restoration. I want, you know, when was it sort of presented to you that, uh, you know, Moonlighting's going to, the entire series is going to be available on Hulu, which I know was a big deal when that happened. So how, how involved with that were you? Oh, I was very involved. I've been campaigning for five years uh, because, you know, I, I was very aware the show really wasn't available. I mean, there were bad copies on YouTube, yeah. um, which I've never understood how that's allowed to happen. But um, so I had approached Disney. <laughs> I mean, in the early aftermath of the show, I approached Disney when Jeffrey Katzenberg was there. I was doing some things for them and said, can I buy the negatives? Because I knew they weren't going to distribute them. And he laughed at me because <laughs> um, it was an incredibly naive <laughs> question. But um, about five years ago, I was just determined for people to see this thing and heard that they were going to start Disney Plus. I thought, oh, maybe there's a place in Disney Plus. And my agent approached them and they said, no, we don't see this as part of the programming on that. 
It was a much purer Disney brand sort of proposition, blah, blah, blah. And I said, don't you have to play things at night for adults? And wouldn't this fit in there somewhere? No, no. Um, the other thing that was always a problem was we did 66 episodes and we used 300 songs. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> which, which is an astounding piece of math. And we had the rights to absolutely none of those songs for the purposes of streaming. No one had anticipated a technology like streaming. So they, they would have to go back and renegotiate with those willing to renegotiate and not everybody would be or, or may not be willing to renegotiate on the terms that were, it made sense for Disney. Um, so it took a long, long time to kind of get everybody to the starting mark. Additionally, the show needed to be remastered. It needed, you know, to be made in HD, if you will. Um, and that's an expensive and time-consuming process. So finally, a little over a year ago, when it became more obvious what the relationship was between Disney and Hulu, because it had been murky prior to that, because Hulu had a bunch of owners. There was Disney, there was Fox, there was, but then Disney absorbed Fox and what was Hulu's identity? It was, oh, it was, a, it was a streaming service that played episodes that had played on the network the day after they played on the network without commercials. And then slowly they started to find their identity. And I got a call saying, okay, we're willing to spend, and I thought it was a very generous amount of money, X amount of dollars to restore the show visually and musically. And we will try our damnedest to get all the music that we can. But we all work in this business and we know 100% probably isn't going to happen. Um, and the people that were doing it made it clear to me that they were all enormous fans of the show and were, were trying to be as, trying to approach it with as much fidelity as they could, you know, realistically. And then the writer's strike happened. So I wasn't able to be as intimately involved as I would have hoped. But frankly, they, they did an outstanding job. So, um, yeah, there are places where they substitute music, which I would have, might have gone in a different direction, this or that. But the team that they put together is basically the team that does the uh, music coordination for all the Marvel movies. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty solid and amazing group. Um, and I thought the visual restoration they did was outstanding. But it was a process. It took about a year once they decided to do it. So, and the, uh, the other thing that's happened, and uh, I'm excited to announce that as of the 16th of January, uh, the show is available to purchase the, the entire series on uh, Apple and on Roku, and there may be some other uh, platforms as well. But uh, they seem to be very excited to be in the moonlighting business, and that excites me. And it really makes me happy that people can see both Bruce and Sybil at, at this sort of moment in their careers, which I think is you know, really special. Oh, that's awesome. And there, there's going to be a link in this episode show notes where you can one click right to uh, a few of the different spots that uh, Glenn mentioned as far as being able to purchase the show. Uh, talk to me about uh, from from what I understand and what I saw, because I do have Hulu. Uh, that show took off when it hit Hulu. I mean, it, it really took off. Well, it, it, yeah, it was number two on Hulu for, for a little bit. And then slowly made its way down the top 10. And now it's, you know, part of uh, their library. Um, and I, there's so little transparency that it's hard. The only way that I can evaluate its success is the fact that Disney keeps finding new ways to get it out there. 
Um, so clearly they're feeling like, hey, we've got something here. I also see that they're sort of opening the vault to other shows, uh, you know, uh, from that period, the 80s and 90s, that heretofore we thought of, oh, that's never going to see the light of the day. It's just too expensive to, to contemplate. Um, I was always sort of fascinated by when uh, Peacock started rebroadcasting Miami Vice because we were on the air virtually the same time. And, and Michael Mann used maybe not as much contemporary music as I did, but, but an awful lot. And I thought, well, if they can afford to show Miami Vice, you know, how, how are they able to do that? Universal and, and Disney isn't, you know, so it, it, it feels great to know that it's out there now. And, and, and I, I'm very happy with the way it's being presented. Yeah, you can nitpick certain things. Oh, I wish that song were there. I wish that song were there instead of the song it was replaced with. But on the whole, I think they did a, an, an astounding job. And not only that, we corrected some mistakes that when it came out on DVD, for instance, uh, there's a very early episode called uh, The Woman in the Iron Mask, or the, I think that's what it is. And the whole finale of the episode um, is Bruce, Sybil, and Dennis Christopher dressed as women wearing veils and running through this hotel. And it's all done to the William Tell Overture. And when Lionsgate put it out, they replaced the William Tell Overture for reasons that escaped me. With because, what? Uh, what did they replace it with? This sort of NDQ. It's one of the most iconic scenes of the entire series. I remember that. Yeah. So uh, we were able to replace that with William Tell Overture. Okay. Um, also, they they released their DVDs with the broadcast uh, order of the show. And when we got into some of the later seasons, the broadcast order of the show wasn't the story order of the show because, again, everybody was in different places. So as soon as we get an episode done, they broadcast. They were so hungry for it, they broadcast it. So you'd have like two the pesto episodes in a row, and then you'd have uh, a Burke Viola episode, and then you'd have a Bruce and Sybil episode. And, and the, the idea was, of course, to mix it up maybe a little. So we put it in what was the story, the story intention episode when they released it uh, on streaming. Um, some things like that that we were able to attend to that, that meant a lot to deep fans who, who bomb your email with these things all the time. Uh, and thank you, deep fans. We're grateful for it. So... Anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think it's I think it's incredible that there is a whole new generation that gets to experience it. That you know, and like you said, with with the improvements and and a lot of things that you know, seeing it in HD. I mean, I know the younger folks out there they'd see the typical you know regular TV presentation. I'm not going to watch this, but so I, I totally get that. So I think that's incredible. And uh, yeah, I have I can tell you personally that I have. Uh, really enjoyed sort of going on that journey of David and Maddie, you know, through adult eyes, which I, you know, I, I'm always so thankful to take these kind of journeys. So, so thank you. Oh. For, thank you for everything you've done. You know, the moonlighting's incredible. Oh, you're sweet. Uh, thank you. Thank you for watching. So, Glenn, you mentioned, you know, earlier on in this episode that Bruce said to you that he's going off to he's going to go off and do Die Hard and you're going to go off and you're going to do a movie. And that movie was Clean and Sober starring Michael Keaton. Yeah. I believe that movie came out in 88. Is that 88? 88. Yeah. OK, so I have vague memories of watching this as a teenager in the 90s, renting it from the video store. Didn't really translate as far as I didn't have a lot of memories of it. I rewatched it yesterday. I knew I was going to be talking to you. I want this to come across as a compliment when I tell you the movie hit me like a ton of bricks. I 
it was an incredible experience. And I remember looking at my girlfriend, I said, no, this is when movies were movies. I mean, this is uh-huh. you, you live vicariously. A great movie will have you live vicariously through the shoes of your, your, your main character. And Michael Keaton, I've always been a fan. And, and for our younger listeners, this is, this is pre Batman, Michael Keaton. This is uh, really Michael Keaton was more known for his comedic, uh, you know, I'm thinking Mr. Mom, Night Shift, you know, things like that. What an incredibly powerful film and one that as I'm watching it, I kept saying to myself, I, I don't know where this story is going to go. I don't know how this story is going to end. And I had this this swimming, looming sense of dread uh, over me the entire time for his character, for all the characters involved. And I'm rambling a little bit here, but I just I want to keep as much praise as I can for you on this film. It was one of the more powerful, one of the most powerful films I've seen. And oh, thank you. because it was so authentic in its depiction of addiction. And I'm wondering if you could start with how did you get involved with this project? I was doing Moonlighting and Moonlighting was getting a lot of attention. And my agents made it known that I really wanted to make films. And um, it was sent, it was a script uh, and it was sent to me. And it was, it was quite different than the movie that you saw. And the proposal from Warner Brothers was, if you rewrite this and we like it, we might entertain the idea of you directing it. So at night, while I was doing like I would rewrite this script, um, got done with it. I felt very good about it and gave it to Warner's. And they said, I remember they said, this is great. We want Jack Nicholson to play this guy. And I said, that would be an enormous mistake. And by the way, Jack Nicholson is somebody that I revered. Five Easy Pieces is like a seminal movie for me. Um, But I said, you have to feel like by dint of his age that he's worth saving. And and Jack has already crossed that meridian. You know, you can't. Um, And the truth was, I really wanted Michael. There was something in Michael I used to call it a black Irish thing. You, you needed to feel like he was capable of this level of self-destruction. Now, at the, you're right. At that time, he was known as Mr. Mom, um, uh, Gung-Ho, and all that stuff. And the people who produced this movie, Ron Howard was one of the producers of the movie, had done Gung-Ho with him and obviously had done The Night Shift with him. Um, but no one thought of him as a dramatic actor. And in fact, when I brought him up to Warner Brothers, they said no. And they wanted me to talk to uh, Tom Hanks. And I said, I love Tom Hanks. I said, but I don't want him for this movie. And they said, why not? And I said, because I said, I'm just not sure you will believe that he's ever capable of the level of self-destruction that's necessary to make the movie work. And they said, well, would you just talk to him? I said, I'll talk to him if you tell him, if you explain to him that I don't see, I don't see him in the movie. And they said, yes. So I went over, he was doing, um, the movie with the dog. I can't remember the name of it. No, Turner, uh, and Hooch. Turner and Hooch. And so I went over to Disney and sat down with him. And by the way, he is everything you think he is. It's truly one of the most extraordinary human beings I have ever had the pleasure to spend time with. Him. But it was apparent to me 10 minutes into the conversation that no one had told him how I felt. <laughs> so we ended up spending an hour and a half. And I remember walking down the hall with him at the end of the meeting. He's like, I'm so excited. I can't believe we're going to do this and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, and um, left the meeting, called the producers and said, you know, 
he, he doesn't know and I, I don't know what to do. And Michael Keaton and they said, Michael Keaton's manager said he's not doing that. They, they won't let him do this. He hasn't done his Ghostbusters yet. You're not getting Michael Keaton. And so you start doing this thing where you go, okay, I'm not getting Michael Keaton. I'm getting Tom Hanks, who I think is fantastic. I'm just uncertain about this one thing, but the one thing means something to me. Now I'll tell you a little side story. So I go to work at Moonlighting and uh, Bruce says to me, uh, did you write a movie? And I said, yes. And he said, I read it. I want to do it. And I said, I said, don't, don't, don't you tell anybody you want to do that movie. He said, why not? I said, because they'll make me do it with you. I said, and I got to do something. You know, it's a very different thing. And he said, well, who do you want? And I said, well, I want Michael Keaton, but they, he, he doesn't want to do it. Apparently, he went out a couple of nights later to some bar and there was Michael. And they all had a couple of drinks and he walked over to Michael and he said, you're a, an effing idiot. And Michael said, why? And he said, my friend wrote this movie for you and it's perfect for you and you should do it, but you won't do it. And Michael said, well, wait a second. I didn't say I wouldn't do it. They gave it to another guy. So Bruce reported this to me. I thought, oh, well, Michael didn't reject the movie. The people around him rejected the movie, but not Michael. So I called Michael Keaton up and I said, do you want to have lunch? And he said, sure. We went to a little Chinese restaurant. And I said, look, I, we've written the script a few times. I said, here's the current version. I said, I really want you, but here are the conditions. I said, you have 48 hours to answer me. I said, and if you choose not to do it, you can never tell anybody that we're having this meeting because another guy has to play this part and I need that person to believe that they're my choice. And he just looked at me like, well, none of this is going to happen. But 48 hours later, he called me. He said, I'm in. And I was like, yay. I was so excited. And I called Warner Brothers and I said, okay, Michael Keaton wants to do the movie. And they said, we, we don't want Michael Keaton. I said, you don't want Michael Keaton? He said, no, he's Mr. Mom. He's like a funny guy. We, we, we want Tom Hanks. And I was like, oh, well, I really want Michael. And I did this Sermon on the Mount about Michael. I went on and on and on. And finally, they said, okay, 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 Michael. I said, okay, now how does this work? Who tells Tom? Because I thought, it's Warner Brothers, big studio. They must have a department, you know, the Department of Disappointments, where <laughs> they said, you. I said, me? Why me? They said, well, it's your decision. We don't want to ruin our relationship with Tom Hanks because you've changed him. I said, I didn't change my mind. I was told one thing. I said, I love Tom Hanks, but it just... So I started smoking again. I started... I mean, I was a mess. I finally was able to... Get, Tom was in Detroit shooting Dragnet. I was finally able to get him on the phone. I said, listen, I said, I have really bad news. I said, I'm rewriting this thing, rewriting this thing, and rewriting this thing, and I realized the guy I'm rewriting it two and four isn't quite you. And I feel awful about that. And he, he took applause and he said, okay, well, you should, you should have who you want. Can I be in your next movie? And I said, oh my God. I said, I want to be you when I grow up. Yeah. The most reasonable, wonderful, generous, you know, and I, of course, I have to go through the rest of my life going, I fired the greatest actor in American film, you know, <laughs> you know, and Michael's also one of the greatest actors in America. I'm not trying to denigrate Michael at all. Michael's amazing. Obviously, he's the person that I, I felt could play his role better than anybody. But it was, for me, an extraordinary experience going through it with these two 
amazing people. And I used to say to Michael, while we were making the movie, I would say, listen, you know, this may open on an airplane. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the most commercial movie ever made. Uh, and he went, okay. You know? um, and that's how he got Batman, by the way. When Tim saw, Tim Burton saw Clint Sober, he used that as a, uh, a tool really to convince Warners that that was his Batman. I, I was that was going to be a question I was going to ask you. I'm wondering if Warner Brothers was as hesitant when when uh, when it came to the, the casting of Batman. But I'm, I'm sure they saw clean and sober. Glenn, you said the, the the script originally was vastly different. Can you tell me a little bit about Daryl's character and, and sort of the changes you made? Well, the, the the script, as I recall, and it was a very good script. It was just different. It was what I would call the sort of National Lampoon version of, of clean and sober. I mean, it was about they're in rehab and there are all these funny characters and they're all okay. going through that. And my experience with people who, you know, there was also in that period of time, there was a certain, it was cool in a way to give drugs and drink a pass. And I thought my experience with that is not that. My experience is this is a horrible thing to be shackled with in your life. And it would be great to sort of expose that in a way that didn't feel saccharine. It didn't feel um, so that you understood what a struggle it was. Um, and that was what I wanted to do. So I rewrote it with that in mind. And I also wanted the part to be sort of a tour de force, to be honest with you. Yeah. I didn't know who Morgan Freeman was when I wrote it. The producers turned me on to him. Uh, and I went, oh, this is you know, what, what a fantastic thing. Kathy Baker. I mean, was, that was the other thing. Michael was like, he wasn't sure he was a dramatic actor. And a lot of the work went into teaching him. Michael, this is going to sound very reductive, but in many ways, Michael was an athlete. I mean, he wanted to play baseball, wanted to be a baseball player. But so he equates um, effort with achievement. But in acting, sometimes it's the opposite. It's, it's actually getting in touch with your stillness as opposed to how much can I give? And once he hooked into that, you know, he holds the camera. You see him thinking, you see him feeling. Um, he's just, it's funny. We, we've never, we, we've talked over the years about maybe doing some things. And then, of course, he went into a period where he just said, I've had enough. And he kind of went away for a bit. I just adore him so much. It's it's the movie I'm probably proudest of in many ways. And I knew it was dark and I knew it was, I mean, when I showed it to Warner Brothers, they went, oh my, I remember Bob Daly said, oh my God, he's going to be nominated for an Academy Award. And the only reason he wasn't was they, back then they had a thing called Tracks that they would, they would, they would release movies and they had to keep movies in theaters. They had arrangements with certain circuits. And they were out of, literally out of movies and they had to release something. So they released Clean and Sober in August, which was not a great time for a. And so by the time nominations rolled around, he was sort of, he won the New York Film Critics Society Award Best Actor that year. But the Oscars just kind of, he just didn't get nominated, you know, and um, really changed the trajectory and the way the movie was perceived and received and all that. But. Um, yeah, I, I just he, want, I he, want to say, I'm sorry to, be, to cut you off there, no, no. you know, cause I, that was one of the things that I really, really thought about a lot. And I'm looking at 88 and 88's 
I think uh, Dustin Hoffman for Rain Man. And, you know, I, I'm looking at, you know, who, who actually wins an Academy Award. I'm not taking away from, from anyone. Uh, movies that were released in 88 but to know the 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 roles that michael keaton have played played before and certainly after clean and sober is you're, you're watching what i think could arguably be his best performance that he's ever given in any film and i think he's amazing in everything he does i oh, thank you it's I, I was i was so moved by him that I don't want to say it's a travesty. I understand. You just explained perfectly why he wasn't nominated. I get it. August is not the time. You know, nowadays they'll release a movie in one theater for two weeks in Los Angeles and New York, and it'll get a wide release in May, you know, for, for Academy qualifications. How did you feel about that, about him not getting nominated? I mean, because it, I felt like I let him down somehow, you know, it's all about me, you know, (laughs) Um, uh, no, I felt like, He'd been robbed, but he didn't. He didn't. Okay. He, he, he understood that he had now opened the aperture of and shown people that he could do far more than they had assumed. Um, and, and that was the goal at the end of the day for him, I think. And, and, and also he felt, as I did about this particular topic, that, that you know, we had served the topic well. And by the topic, I don't mean drug abuse and I don't mean alcoholism. I mean, the topic is, as a human being, you cannot dig a hole deep enough that you can't climb out of it as long as you're willing to do it one step at a time. I mean, for me, ultimately, that was what the film was about. And, um, and also, I suppose in a narcissistic way, I thought if Moonlighting is a, a 45 RPM record, I want to make a 33 and a third you know, I, I, I want also to show for me that I, I can do other things. I can't, it's not just, you know, this sort of thing that I do on Moonlighting. Um, and, and it succeeded in that, you know. This is the same year that he does Beetlejuice, which is another outstanding performance by him, which is, it couldn't be too farther ends of the spectrum. But exactly. He, he, really, he really does uh, absolutely shine in the film. Another actor who I'm a big fan of in this film, uh, M. Emmett Walsh is... Yes. His, his, I did. Tell me about the casting of him because he was just so... I mean, this is somebody I wish I had it. I just knew in life. You know, I, I don't... I don't suffer from any addictions that I know of, but he's still somebody that I was watching this film saying, I would like to know the character of Richard because he just came uh, across just incredible. Uh, it's just an instinct. I'd seen him in um, Blood Simple. Yeah. And it turned out the woman uh, who cast the film uh, was the person who sort of got him started in theater and stuff like that. And um, I ended up doing two movies with him. The movie I did that Vince wrote, Wilder Napalm, uh, he's in. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm going to put him in every movie I ever make. Um, that didn't happen. But, <laughs> but he's it's just such a joy to be around. And um, there's something very pure about, you know, him as an actor. And he and Michael, I mean, for me with Clean Sober, it's just... I was constantly in my head saying, does this person make sense next to And that's why I loved casting. And it, it was a difficult conversation with Warner Brothers because she wasn't the obvious choice, but casting Kathy Baker as the love interest because she was not thought of as someone who would occupy that space um, at that moment. And, uh, and I think Michael was surprised. He kind of looked at her and went, oh, I'm not sure I understand this. And then I said, just try it. So we shot a screen test and he went, okay, I get it. 
<laughs> you know, she's so real and yeah. she's so earthy and she's so such a dream. And we used we used the C word in that movie. I remember writing it and thinking, I don't know if anybody's going to say this, but this is what I like. I'm going to say. And she she understood you know, that level of self denigration. And uh, I don't know. It was just it was a great 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 experience. There's, you know, I'm going to say minor spoilers for uh, for clean and sober for the listeners out there. Just hit pause, watch the movie, come back. I'll, I'll, I'll please. <laughs> you talk about sort of the redemption aspect, and you that there's, you know, there's no hole that you can't climb out of. And and I mentioned earlier that I was, you know, watching this movie initially with this sense of dread for his character. Like I've seen mm -hmm. enough other movies where I know how this is going to end and it doesn't end the way I thought it was going to end. You know, I really had no idea. And the, the scene when Michael Keaton and, and this is towards the end of the film um, and, and Kathy Baker, yeah. he's looking for a lighter in her purse and he, he finds the cocaine and, and makes her flush it. And it's just, it realizing that he had overcome that one step and he was going a little bit further. I just, and he has that ultimate redemption. I'm sorry, I'm gushing a little bit over the film, but I was just, just blown away with, with how the movie ended. Now I, I'm not going to spoil anything about Kathy Baker's character in the film, other than to say there was redemption for some characters. Just incredible. And I'm trying to remember, cause I, the thing I was always proudest of is when he has that moment at the end without giving it away between himself and Richard and Richard sort of calls him on his own. I've always liked that. And that may have been in the original script. I'm not sure that came from me. That may have come. But, but I remember just being thinking, I've never seen this before, but it feels like the truth. And of course, M. Emmett nailed it. Michael nailed it. And, Warner Brothers was funny. When I was making the movie, I'd always seen it on a snowy day. And whenever I seemed to be on the precipice of falling behind, they go, if you fall behind, you don't get snow. <laughs> and I'd never made a movie before. I, I wasn't used to this sort of, uh, I was like, wow, okay. And I really needed the snow. I felt very strongly that that added a value to the scene that it needed. I hadn't thought of that in a long time. Anyway. I just recently had um, author uh, Matt Singer on the show. He wrote the book Opposable Thumbs, uh, how Siskel and mm -hmm. Ebert uh, changed yes. movies forever. And of course, I'm always curious where they stood on this. And I, I actually found their review and they were both very, very positive on the film. And I'm just wondering your thoughts on sort of the reactions to the movie once it was released. Oh, I was overwhelmed. I, I'm, I'm actually staring at, I still have a copy of the double page New York Times ad, which is all sort of critic. Back then, they would do these sort of critics poll. Yeah. People cared what critics thought. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, there were one or two. I seem to recall Ebert, was, who I think had some issues, uh, abuse, you know, drug abuse issues himself, uh, felt, took some issues with some things. But I remember Siskel seemed to really, really like it. Um, but no, no, I was, and, and some of the even heavier critics of the day seemed to really, really like it. Paul and Taylor really liked it. And also filmmakers that I cared about liked it. So that meant a lot to me. Um, no, no, I was, I was thrilled. I couldn't, I was also palsy. It took me a long time to figure out what to do next, to be honest with you. I mean, it was, it, it, 
My success happened very quickly, and I come from a very modest background, so it, it, there was a big learning curve, and and you know, uh, it's all bottled up together. I, I told, I was telling somebody about this. I said, when, you know, when moonlighting happened, I was not present in the sense that I didn't find it productive to sort of wallow. And, uh, hey, look how big this is. And, hey, look how I sort of stuck my head in the sand. I had my work to do. I had a family, and I was trying to figure out how to make sense of all that. And and so I wasn't there. I wasn't present in that way. And same thing with clean and sober, to be honest with you. I think I'm better able to deal with it all from a slight remove. Yeah. Um, so that's my that's sort of my comfort place. But that's how I dealt with it. And I was living... When it came out, where was I living? I guess I was still in California, but I remember a friend of mine took a picture of a theater marquee in New York, because I'm from New York, like on Broadway. You know, and I thought, that's pretty cool, Damn. you know. <laughs> um, but because it came out in August, you know, it didn't get the hoopla, it didn't get the, I don't even remember a premiere as such. Um, it may have had one, but I don't recall it. So... So it goes. So uh, listen, Clean and Sober is it's available to rent on Apple TV, Vudu, YouTube, all the different places. I, I strongly encourage uh, the listeners out there to to take a couple hours out of your day and watch what I consider to be one of the more powerful films I've had the pleasure of watching. Glenn, thank you for making that movie. It was just oh, no, no. just incredible experience. No, it's and it's really Michael. I mean, yeah. the reason to rent the movie is Michael. It's just he's he's so fantastic in it, and it's an unexpected performance because, as you eloquently explained, prior to that he was, you know, he was the court jester. You know, he was a comedian, a full-out balls to the wall comedian. So, just great performance. I got I have to ask this question. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question. There are scenes in that film where I'm wondering what happens to him when you yell cut, how does his demeanor change? I mean, does he go method for like, you know, a good 20 minutes until he can kind of bring himself down? I'm just wondering when you hit cut, did he just spring right out of it? Because there are certain scenes where he is so dialed in. And I'll just say zooming for a lack of a better term that I'm just wondering what it's like when the camera stops rolling just for those first couple minutes. I, I don't recall any, any, anything demonstrative like that at all. We were, you know, just committed to getting to telling the story and being honest to the character, and and he was too. And um, I remember the shooting was pretty efficient. I mean, we maybe go five takes, maybe go six once in a while, sometimes just four. It wasn't, you know, but once because he knew once he had the character, he had the character. Yeah. He, it was it was a. I remember using the word flinty a lot. He was very flinty. Um, and I remember once he turned to me and went, you're really funny. And I mentioned that only because that was sort of the way we got through it was we joked with each other. I mean, it's funny. When you do serious movies, you tend to really, this has been my experience, you tend to joke a lot. The, the antithesis of what you're doing. Yeah. And when you make funny movies, they're very serious. 
they require a sort of a level, a different kind of concentration. Um, but so I remember, I do remember horsing around a lot, you know, and telling jokes. And I remember also we do this thing because we both felt like we were kids. Sort of, he'd made movies, but he was still establishing who he was. He didn't feel like he had done. So we'd sit there and go, who do you want to work with? You can work with anybody. Who do you want to work with? And he'd say, uh, what do you think of Peter O'Toole? And I go, Peter, oh man, blah, blah, blah. And we do that a lot. We talked movies like a lot. Um, and he's, like I say, he's an athlete and he's also like he, a fisherman. And I mean, he's so not who you think he is. And he's got like a passel of brothers. And I mean, he's just, he's, 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 and he's great fun to be with. But also a serious thinker. He was the first guy who ever said to me, You read Atlanta Magazine? I said, No. He said, Shit. <laughs> and, you know, he was like, He was just, he was terrific. That's awesome. He was terrific. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so uh, Glenn, I think it's safe to say that we, we only scratched the surface of, uh, <laughs> of, of, uh, of, of, you know, your career. Um, I was wondering. I want to spend some time on moonlighting. I want to spend some time on clean and sober. Uh, there's a lot more that you, in sort of in, you, in your career. Um, unfortunately, I, we're, we're going to run out of time on today's episode, but I would love to invite you back. Uh, to oh, kinda, I'd love to come back. Oh, that would be amazing. So um, just, just in closing, for the younger listeners out there that have, have not seen moonlighting, I'm sure they've heard of it. You know, what, what's one thing that you hope that they take away from, from watching this, which is now available on Hulu? Wow. Uh, I don't know. Just we, I hope what comes through is what a good time we were having. Because what people mostly remember is, is, are the conflicts. There were, you know, obviously Bruce and Sybil had their issues and uh, Sybil and I had our issues. And, 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 but it was also a place where I think we all felt like we could let our imaginations run free and, you know, best idea wins. And it was, I hope that somehow seeps into the, into the film and people see that and they go, Oh God, those guys were having, we're having an awfully good time, you know, and, and, and wanting very much to share it. Um, I'm not a proponent of drugs in any way, but I will confess that I used to say to Bruce when we were doing it, if our kids are in college and getting high and watching this at midnight, I will feel like we have succeeded in what we set out to do. Because that used to be a thing. You'd show movies at midnight. And, yeah. Uh, so, uh, no, I, that's the only thing. It's filled with youthful exuberance and the fantastic combination of, of ignorance and ambition, you know? So... And somewhat unfettered ignorance and ambition. <laughs> something, something you said really resonated with me. Uh, as far as you can tell, it, it seems like everyone is having a great time making this. There seem there is there is there is a lot of fun about the show, and that's the best way for me to describe it. Is it's fun and it's a good time, and it's. I mean, it was groundbreaking when it came out. You know, well, you set out to make the twenty fifth, you know, boy girl detective show, and you you literally flipped the genre on its head. And, and created well, something that has some incredible lasting impact. Again, I was really just trying to amuse myself. Yeah. And, you know, uh, luckily it worked out. Um, 
Uh, anyway, you're very generous, and thank you for including me in your uh, party here. And uh, uh, again, you know, if you, if you ever need anything, just give me a shout, and I'm, I'm happy to do it again. I will. I will. So, all right. Okay. Well, good. Of course. And I really, really appreciate that. And thank you for taking some time out of your day to to share. Uh, you know, a part of your journey. I can't wait to hear about the rest of it. So, so Glenn, thank you so much. And, and, and I hope uh, all is well this year. Okay. All right. Nice meeting you, by the way. Th- nice meeting you. And uh, for the listeners out there, my name is Dana Buckler. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>